when we were in the book of Numbers together, I think that was the first time I ever thought seriously about the phrase cities of refuge. And um, I, you know, I've, I've read that phrase before in some way, trying to be familiar with uh, these texts in the Torah. And, um, and yet in our time in Numbers, because you come across certain texts, as you do when you're going through chapters of a book, uh, you come to texts and you think, okay, I might not have ever thought much about this phrase or why it would even be in the Bible or what we would do with it as New Covenant readers. And then you come to find that Numbers is not the only book concerned with cities where people whose actions have resulted in the death of someone, where that person who resulted in that death can flee to for a certain time, and why these concerns are even in the Pentateuch. Uh, Numbers 35 is the first place these cities are brought to our attention. The second place is in our passage tonight, and it is a very brief text. This will not be a long study tonight. It's a brief study on these three verses. But there are two other passages, one in Deuteronomy and one in chapter 20 of Joshua, that are going to help us. Deuteronomy 19 and Joshua chapter 20. Uh, the, the context is that Israel is going into a land under Joshua's leadership, and that in the ancient world, there was a principle practiced in multiple ancient cultures called blood vengeance. Blood vengeance. Blood vengeance was the practice that if someone in your family was killed, it was acceptable for a member of the deceased to avenge the death and to put to death the murderer. Uh, this was a custom called blood vengeance, and this was practiced in ancient civilizations and it has to do, I think, with an assumed principle of the family unit. Yes, an individual dies uh, when such a death occurs, but because a family is affected, a household is affected when someone's life is taken, it's like that infliction is not just upon the individual, but the unit, the social unit. So that the social unit has an understood green light or responsibility even to put to rights what had been made wrong. Now, initially when people hear about this ancient principle, it sounds simply like just a, a kind of vindictiveness individually. It is more complicated than that. I wouldn't suggest that in the ancient world that idea is completely removed, but it is to say the concern is a wrong has been committed and we want this wrong to be put to right. Now, in Genesis chapter 9, long before there was an Abraham and an Israel, in Genesis chapter 9, Noah and, uh, and those building this new civilization of humanity, they are told that when a man sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And it's a, it's a principle of saying, what's happened when a murder takes place? Well, it's the, the end of the life of an image bearer, and that is such a sacred life to have been taken that the, the way to demonstrate the horror of that activity is not to say, oh, well, you know, you, you go out there and try, try harder. Or, you know, what if you, what if you just, you know, paid $1,000 and then we'll forget that ever happened. Or, you know, you can imagine a way to try to think about recompense that in the ancient world, it didn't jive as well with them as much as the principle of life for life. So that if a murder took place, 
the murderer was thereby forfeiting his or her own life through that homicidal act. Now, there's a complicated nature to this because it can be the case that someone's life is lost unintentionally. Unintentionally. And so we would call this um, manslaughter. And this manslayer uh, that is spoken about in Deuteronomy 4, here is someone whose actions result in the death of a neighbor. But the Bible does not flatten out outcomes to say what led up to that. It doesn't matter. You know, the death of an individual took place, so treat it all the same. The Bible doesn't treat it all the same. In fact, intent matters. And whether someone can bear witness or offer testimony to malicious premeditated activity. We saw this in Numbers chapter 35 together, and I want to give you a a reminder. It's been months since we were there. But in Numbers 35, we're told that if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he's a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. If he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he's a murderer. He shall be put to death. If he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he's a murderer. So trying to give examples of saying, yeah, this went an accident when you went after this person with a stone tool, okay? It's not like you could say, oh, you know, I'm not sure what happened to that guy, and I don't really think I had any responsibility. Oh, you bear quite an intimate responsibility uh, for that uh, hand-to-hand resulting in death. If he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death, And without seeing him, dropped it on him so that he died. Though he wasn't his enemy and though he didn't seek his harm, then um, the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer. There's the idea here that, okay, you could be involved in some sort of activity and you did not intend the death of a person to happen. Let's say that in the ancient world, all of the fleshly, worldly impulses to uh, maybe get revenge or even overreact to things are, are animated within uh, um, people who may be rightly angry at a circumstance. They're like, this should not have happened. And they're feeling hot-headed and hasty. And they just go after the manslayer without any procedures, without any protocol, without any consideration about circumstances and factors. The Bible would not want that to happen. The biblical authors would actually um, compel us in Deuteronomy 4, Numbers 35, and a couple other places, Deuteronomy 19 and Joshua 20, to allow some time to pass for evidence and testimony to be gathered. And the reason that matters is that the lawful taking of someone's life is also an incredibly serious thing. And no one should ever be hasty to do that. And in the scriptures, in Deuteronomy 4, a provision is set up for the person whose life is now on the line. And the provision God set up is called a city of refuge. A city of refuge. So that gets us to Deuteronomy 4 with a little bit of that Numbers 35 background. And we're going to peek into Deuteronomy 19 and in Joshua 20 just to add a little bit of meat on the bones here in a bit. But according to Deuteronomy 4, 41 and 42, the purpose of three cities, Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan, so that the manslayer might flee there. The manslayer is the term for the person who did something, even if unintentionally, that resulted in a death. 
That manslayer is going to flee to one of these three cities east of the Jordan if he's there. Anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally without being at enmity with him in time past, he may flee to one of these cities and save his life. So the purpose of the cities is given in verses 41 and 42. Uh, I'm going to return to that, but briefly, verse 43. Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland for the Reubenites. So think tribe of Reuben. Ramoth and Gilead for the Gadites. So think tribe of Gad. And Golan and Bashan for the Manassites. Think tribe of Manasseh. So Reuben, Gad, Manasseh. Why do we know those names east of the Jordan? Because east of the Jordan... Two and a half tribes would dwell there and not occupy an allotted territory west of the Jordan. They were to follow the Israelites with Joshua, cross over in, and accomplish the whole conquest. But Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh were granted time to uh, were granted a safe passage back over the Jordan, where they would live on the east. All right. So, well, here you have a problem. If some of the tribes are not living in the Promised Land, these people in Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, I mean, they're still sinners. And, and still terrible things are going to happen east of the Jordan River. So where's the recourse for these people? Where will a city of refuge be? The idea behind this seems to be we want a close vicinity, like a day's walk. Okay? A day's walk. One of these cities. So the promised land proper is going to have cities of refuge. But God in His grace is going to give three cities of refuge to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And, and the reason that matters is they will not have to cross the Jordan and try to find asylum somewhere while their cases are being um, legislated and, and considered. Instead, God has provided a place where they will be kept safe while all of the various factors are worked out. And, and those factors will result in one of two options, or one of two possibilities. Either the congregation that gathers to consider their case, these legal representatives, they will either declare guilty, and then that manslayer will be put to death. Or they will say, this person is not guilty of murder. And the person who committed the act, even unintentionally, is allowed to live. The, the background then to these three cities is a concern for the just treatment of the accused. That here's what you wouldn't have happen. You, you know, these people show up at the gates of some city and they say, all right, this guy did this. And then, and then the people are all, I can't believe he did that. Can you imagine him doing that? Off with his head. You know, let's bring him outside the city. Let's just take care of it right now. This, this was to deter a kind of impulsive mob-like mentality that could easily prevail when instead cooler heads should prevail, factors and evidence be gathered, and, are, and, the, and the just decision, Lord willing, being reached. Even a fallen world, that is the goal. So the purpose of these three cities, we, we set aside verse 43 now, back to verses 41 and 42. These three cities are beyond the Jordan, which means east of the Jordan River, where Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh are going to live. The manslayer is going to flee there, this one who kills his neighbor unintentionally, without being at enmity with him, that neighbor, in time past. Which means it's not like he's got a grudge. It's not like there's some kind of hostility between them, where there could be some brewing, premeditated, boiling animosity that finally gives way in, a, in an act of passion to murder. Instead, this is not enmity that led to this death. It was unintentional. And he's going to flee to one of these three cities and save his life. 
Now let's add a little bit of information to this. I'm going to go to Deuteronomy 19. I'm going to read a few verses from this, and you're welcome to turn there, of course. Deuteronomy 19. And um, we're, we're told that when the Lord cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God's giving you, and you dispossess them, which means you conquer them and you conquest the land, and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land the Lord your God's giving you to possess. Now in verse 4, this is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally, without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. I mean, what's he just describing there? He's describing there a freak accident, right? Here you are in the forest and you're swinging the axe. You didn't mean for the head of the axe to come off. But when it came off, it went in the precise trajectory, striking your neighbor's head, and you did not mean that to happen. You think that's a pretty grotesque hypothetical. I mean, it is, but they're trying to say, let's imagine a scenario where, where the horrific thing happened, and it was not premeditated. So he, the, the one who wielded the axe, may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him. You, you know what compromises justice Unrighteous anger. Unrighteous anger. A kind of indignation that, that goes beyond the boundaries of, of trying to consider factors and intent and testimony and, and allow some time to pass so that, so that as, as clearly we, we can think about a matter, the, the most uh, reasonable and just result would take place. Man, hot-headed worldly anger can get in the way of that. And none of us are immune from this. None of us are immune from this. So, so the, the Bible is making some accommodations in a sinful world, knowing how people can be. Knowing how people can be. So the goal here is to pursue justice. And the goal here is to curb the impulses toward injustice, which might be someone saying, well, I don't care how it happened. It happened. So, you know, I'm, I'm going after this person. Well, that's not the same, is it? than if someone had premeditated and decided and plotted for lengths of time or even a day for someone's death. So this avenger of blood, who's this person? The avenger of blood is a family member. This is not a legal authority, but this is legally sanctioned. Now, we don't operate in a society where this is the way it is, but you should know that in ancient cultures, the blood vengeance practice was a custom that was appropriated by family members, and this was something societally that was uh, allowed because of the concern for the family unit's um, recompense. So you have here, lest the avenger of blood and hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man didn't deserve to die, since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. They don't want something to happen that shouldn't happen. That would be unjust. So they're, trying, they're avoiding that with this uh, city of refuge. Now, how would this look? I mean, if, you, if you're accused, I mean, would you just show up at one of these cities? All right, well, let's go to Joshua 20. Let's see what happens. Here's, here's a bit more information and, and probably the most step-by-step -step that it sounds like in this process. Joshua 20, the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. 
They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. These cities, that is. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Now, pause for a second. This means, okay, this this is not necessarily where you live before. This is where you go after something has happened. All right, so you, you you have been in a circumstance where now a death has occurred, you were involved in some way, and people need to work this out. And they need to figure out essentially what the appropriate penalty or consequence needs to be for you. And in order to avoid hot-blooded blood avengers, you are granted asylum in the city of refuge. So it sounds like, and I think it's correct, that you show up at the gate of one of those three cities, if you're east of the Jordan, you show up and then the people there, they're like, all right, what business is, you know, why are you here? And you, you basically explain the legal conundrum that you are currently in. Like, here's my situation. Here's what I'm charged with. And, and here's what the circumstances were. So you shall explain your case and they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. This is, this is a way of saying you will be kept safe. These cities of refuge are understood to be places where you go with the understanding that your legal proceedings are going to work themselves out and your life is not in jeopardy. In verse 5, if the avenger of blood pursues him, I mean, after all, it's one of six cities. Right? So it's not like it's like, oh, where east of the Jordan or west of the Jordan could he be? Just it's going to travel and he's got six cities uh, if there's the cities of refuge. Maybe the guy thought strategically to go elsewhere. But otherwise, six cities, three on the west, three on the east. Let's say the avenger of blood shows up. They shall not give up the manslayer. He says, oh, but I got all this money. I'll give you $1,000. You know, they are not to subvert the proceedings of justice in any way. They're not to say, oh yeah, we thought somebody would come looking for that guy. We got, we got him in room, you know, whatever. And so they are not to give this guy up. If the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and didn't hate him in the past. He shall remain in that city until he stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at that time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and to his own home, to the town from which he fled. Now, in Numbers 35, we learn a little bit more of information. I'm just going to relay that to you uh, rather than turning there. In Numbers 35, a trial is going to take place. As much as we could call it one with our language looking back in hindsight, this is a proceeding where people are going to render a verdict. They are representatives legally. No doubt the Levites are involved because each of these three cities, the three in the west and the three on the east of the Jordan River, these six cities are of the 48 Levitical cities. So these are Levite cities that would have been very much um, consisting of proceedings the Levites would be involved in. The Levites were instructors in and teachers of the law of God. So in each of these cities of refuge, you have people equipped, hopefully, with wisdom and their devotion to the Scripture to think about these matters and to hear evidence and testimony and to listen to your case. And we're told in Deuteronomy and in Numbers that no one is to be put to death except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So they are not taking this lightly. They're taking this very seriously. And if, you, if it can be demonstrated... 
beyond a reasonable doubt, should we say, that, that you are guilty of this crime, then your life is forfeited. According to Numbers 35, you would be put to death. Now, let's say that the proceedings end in your favor. And you are declared, we would say, not guilty of murder. There was some sort of incident of manslaughter. It was unintentional, but, but your intent has prevailed because you are not guilty of the crime of premeditated homicide. Well, you get to live, but here's the catch. You live in that city of refuge. This is not jail. This is not prison. This is not house arrest. This is a functioning city. This city of refuge will be your home, and you get to live... And if you flee that city of refuge, then your life is forfeited. Should the manslayer find you, you should be rightly put to death. And the assumption seems to be those who are innocent would most certainly not seek to forfeit their life and would want to follow all the proceedings, including remaining in the city. But if someone knows what the expectation of the law is, and doesn't care, that might suggest that the congregation rendered the wrong verdict. And that if someone says, I'm going to leave the city of refuge, I'm going to do what I want, I'm going to go where I want, that may, that may indicate something far more dangerous internally when the law of God is directing you. And this isn't like, you know, the local city council board gathered together and the majority vote said, you know, we think you should stay. This is... A divinely revealed word, very specific about where they're to remain. So it comes down ultimately to living in obedience to God, doesn't it? It's a very serious thing. So if someone says, I'm not going to do that, and they flee, then if the manslayer prevailed upon them, I'm sorry, the manslayer, I didn't mean that, the blood avenging family member prevailed upon the manslayer, um, the family member would not be considered guilty. So this is what Numbers 35 lays out. And you say, well, how long do you have to live in that city? Five years? Ten years? The answer to that is, in Numbers 35, until the high priest dies. Until the high priest dies. And the connection there seems to be, according to uh, Numbers 35, that the death, the, the, the death of this image bearer has caused some sort of spiritual pollution in the land that needs to be overcome or Purged, And only death, in some sense, brings cleansing. So something wrong has taken place. It should not have happened, even unintentionally. It, it, it is not the case that that, that uh, initial death should have taken place. And in order to compensate for that, another death will happen. But, but it will not be your death. It will be the high priest's death. So... The high priest's death counts in your place. His death, not yours. So you have been involved in something that resulted in a death, but now your death is not demanded. Instead, in your place, the high priest's death substitutes, and at the death of the high priest, you are freed. The death of the high priest has achieved what we might say what's counted by God as a kind of atonement for the wrong, even unintentionally, that was done. So the high priest's death is the key. 
And uh, that means, you know, they're not just saying if anybody dies in Israel. The high priest was the most important status in the Israelites, not because the high priest was without sin. The high priest was not without sin. The high priest was set apart by God for a special mediating and representative work. And even his representative work ending in his ultimate death, since all the high priests would die eventually, his death had in some, some sense a representative function for you, the manslayer. And your action was covered, we, we could say. Now, we, we've thought about uh, Joshua 20 and Deuteronomy 19. Look here at uh, Deuteronomy 4. We've peeked back to Numbers 35. Th- this may not only be the case for me, this may be part of our Numbers and Deuteronomy study the most you've ever thought about the cities of refuge. I've never thought about the cities of refuge as much as I have in preparing for things in Numbers and Deuteronomy. But, but here are some of the things that I very much appreciate about these concerns. First of all, The cities of refuge seem to be, as one writer called it, an early instance of our phrase due process, right? So that you have have someone, though charged, is not immediately considered guilty. Instead, it's like, okay, they're accused. They, They may have been involved in this. They may be a person of interest. Let's get some information. Let's not be hasty here. We want justice to be done. We we don't want hot-headed passions to prevail, and then all of a sudden a death then results that shouldn't have. Or what turns out to just be personal vengeance and vindictiveness, rather than illegal proceedings from recognized representatives who have a greater interest in justice than maybe a family grudge. So they have to, they have to really think carefully here for the principle of justice, and this was something quite different in Israel. So, you should know That in the ancient world, while there was a custom of blood vengeance, there was not a practice of cities of refuge. You know where you find the hands up, slow down, let's consider justice, let's not be hasty here. And and so that everybody would, would pause, take a deep breath, let proceedings take place. You find that in the Israelite code. These cities of refuge where people can go and and perhaps be spared because they have been shown to not have intended the act. Uh, We we would also consider the principle of, let's say, seeking asylum. This happens in countries around the world. A person in a country feels that they're in danger. And and they go to a particular city needing asylum because of a threat to their life. Well, you can recognize the analogy here. Here you have the, the real possibility that either west of the Jordan or east of the Jordan somebody's going to have a threat to their life because they've been involved in something that resulted in a death. And, and they would rightly understand why people would be greatly grieved and angered. And, and, they, and therefore, they want, they want to pursue safety so that all the information and hopefully a verdict in their behalf could be rendered. So we consider those principles. But then lastly, I want to make a connection here Christologically. And I've even prepared for this Uh, a moment ago by using language in a certain way that the death of the high priest is considered to count for the fact that your death was not demanded of you. That something happened that shouldn't have happened intentionally or unintentionally. And here the high priest's death frees, if you will, this person from the location of the city of refuge. I love the way Hebrews 6 puts it. 
Hebrews 6.17 says that God, who, for whom it is, impo- it is impossible to lie, to God we have fled for refuge. Just thinking about that phrase for a moment, Hebrews 6, 17 and 18, the full verses are that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible to God for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. I want you to consider tonight that Jesus is like the greater city of of refuge. And that every city of refuge in the Old Testament where the people fled is foreshadowing the Lord Jesus himself to whom we flee for refuge. Because the high priest's death, Jesus is the greater high priest. Hebrews not only talks about fleeing to the good gospel news and the living Christ for refuge in Hebrews 6, Hebrews makes much of the idea that Jesus is our high priest. He has died the death necessary to bring atonement and cleansing. And he did it once and for all. All those other high priests, they were sinners. And all those other high priests, they died and stayed dead. Jesus has no sin. He comes as the one without sin. Our sin is counted to him. And then he dies and does not remain dead. He's the high priest who defeats death. And that the cleansing of his work on the cross is counted for all who have refuge in him. But I'll tell you what makes Jesus a better city of refuge than any of the cities of refuge in the Old Testament. The cities of refuge were places where the innocent could remain until the death of the high priest. And then they were set free. The high priest's death freed those who without intent had resulted in some way the death of an image bearer. And so their innocence, established by legal proceedings, is then followed by them remaining in that city of refuge. And Jesus is a better high priest because Jesus is the refuge for the guilty. Jesus is the refuge of those who are not innocent but have committed and are rightly accused before the law of God and are rightly condemned and have committed the acts of injustice and the acts of dishonor to God and whose hearts and words and actions are out of sync with His wisdom and perfection. We are guilty. And Jesus, as the better refuge for sinners, invites the guilty to come to Him and that in His atoning death, He might have life and freedom So that we are declared then not guilty, not on the basis of our intent being unveiled. We are declared not guilty on the basis of his perfect atoning work counted in our place. Let's pray.